Your hometown is just a small place with dirt roads. You set off one morning and hike to the nearby hills. There are several caves in the hills, caves where treasures can be found, guarded by monsters. You have heard that a man's name Bargle may also be found in these caves. Bargle is a sort of a bandit who has been stealing money, killing people and terrorising your town. If you can catch him, you can become a hero. As you approach the entrance, you look around. Hi, this is Simon from Legend of the Bones, and you're listening to Roleplay Rescue. Jay's gonna bring me back Give me a plus one to attack Oh, 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 I want to come back to the dice Whoa, oh, 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 I think I need some good advice I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah. I need a roleplay rescue, oh yeah, oh yeah. Hello rescuers, welcome back to Roleplay Rescue, the podcast about rediscovering our lost roleplaying games hobby. Today I want to talk about the most durable, long-serving and underrated game structure in roleplaying games. Most GMs use some form of it in most sessions, anytime they come to a location in their world where the player characters need to explore. Recently in my Stars Darkened science fiction campaign, the players engaged with this game structure while they searched an abandoned science vessel, moving from chamber to chamber along corridors and breaking into tightly secured rooms. Yes, I want to talk about the humble dungeon crawl which has become tarnished over the years by people who totally fail to understand that the crawl is a fundamental and sturdy structure for any moment when the characters enter a location they want to explore. I prefer to call them location crawls and honestly this is the second big tool in the Game Master's methodological toolkit. This is Season 12, Episode 6, Location, Location, Location. Dungeons and Dragons taught us how to dungeon crawl. I didn't see the 1974 original until much, much later. In 1979, my friend Daniel bought Advanced D&D and I began to play Dungeons and Dragons with my friends for the first time. We had no idea that the 1981 Basic and Expert D&D wasn't quite the same game, but I... so we ended up mixing stuff up but it really didn't matter because Daniel was the dungeon master and we were all having fun. In 1983 well-meaning parents bought me my own copy of Dungeons and Dragons. This came in a bright red box and contained a bunch of softcover booklets, dice and I think a crayon. Although I wasn't yet a dungeon master this was probably the first time I sat down to read about how to run a dungeon adventure and it's the product that I think of whenever someone talks about dungeon adventuring. The first words I read were these, quote, A dungeon is a group of rooms and corridors in which monsters and treasures can be found, and you will find them as you play the role of a character in a fantasy world. There are many kinds of monsters, but dragons are the biggest and most dangerous, and have the most treasure, end quote. From there, those two red booklets from Mensa's 1983 D&D basic set taught me everything I needed to know to begin to run a dungeon crawl. 
The Alexandrian, in his brilliant series of blog posts about game structures published in 2012, he says this about dungeon crawls. Quote, The most successful scenario structure in the history of role-playing games is the traditional dungeon crawl. In fact, I believe that much of D&D's success rests on the strength of the traditional dungeon crawl as a scenario structure. Notably, it is a structure which has proven extremely effective even when translated into other mediums and executed with completely different mechanics. End quote. He goes on to explain why dungeon crawls are so successful, and although the post is relatively short, I'm going to read it to you because, as ever, Justin Alexander's words are very well chosen. Quote, what makes it work? First, for the player, it provides... 1. A default goal, specifically find all the treasure, kill all the monsters, or some other variant of clear the dungeon. In other words, the structure inherently provides a reason for the player to engage the scenario. 2. A default action. If a player is standing in a room and there's nothing interesting to do in the room, then they should pick an exit and go to the next room. Collectively, these mean that the player always has an answer to the question, what do I do next? Second, for the GM, the dungeon crawl is, one, easy to prep. In fact, it's virtually impossible for even a neophyte DM to screw up the design of a dungeon crawl. What's he going to do? Forget to draw an exit from the room? And two, easy to run. This extends beyond the macro structure of the dungeon crawl and begins to depend on the D&D rule set itself, but in general, any action proposed by the players within the dungeon will usually have a self-evident method of resolution. The dungeon crawl also firewalls the adventure into discrete chunks, the individual rooms, which can generally be run as small, manageable packets. Collectively, these mean that even first-time DMs can reliably design and run a dungeon crawl without leaving either A, their players stymied, or B, themselves confused. This is huge. Thanks to the dungeon crawl, D&D can reliably create new DMs in a way that most other RPGs can't and don't. But the dungeon crawl also has a couple of other key features. One, it provides structure but not a straitjacket. When the players ask themselves, what do I do now? The dungeon crawl provides them with a default answer, go through an exit. But it doesn't prohibit them from creating all sorts of other answers for themselves fight the goblins, investigate the arcane runes, set up a fungal garden, check for traps, translate the hieroglyphics, reverse engineer the construction of the dwarven golems, negotiate with the necromancer, and on and on and on. It doesn't even prevent you from leaving the structure entirely. The D&D rules include a multitude of options for bypassing the structure of the dungeon itself. 2. Flexibility within the form. The DM can put just about anything into the structure. Each dungeon room, each chunk of content delivered by the scenario structure is a completely blank canvas. Having this simple to understand, simple to design and simple to use scenario structure makes D&D universally accessible in a way that, for example, transhuman space isn't. End quote. For this reason, I feel that every GM would benefit from learning how to run a dungeon crawl, even if the place the player characters are exploring isn't technically a dungeon. Any location which requires exploration can use this game structure. It's the basic structure of the role-playing game beyond combat. And if you're coming back to the table, this is the key to running an exciting first adventure in a way that's practically foolproof.
1983 Dungeons & Dragons basic set provides the best introduction to dungeon crawling I think I've ever come across. While experienced dungeon mastering listeners may well prefer the 1981 basic expert rules, and I can certainly understand why, for me the key to unlocking all of this lies in those old booklets from 1983. Collectively, the full set has become known as Beckme, Basic Expert Companion Master Immortal Dungeons & Dragons, or most favoured of all, you can get the rules without all of the teaching materials in the D&D Rules Cyclopedia from 1991. But I'd recommend considering reading the Mensa booklets because, well, they're available on DriveThruRPG for 5 bucks each, that's just 10 bucks total, and they are absolutely classic. Quote, a dungeon is a group of rooms and corridors in which monsters and treasures can be found. End quote. I might translate that to other genres and rule sets by saying, a location is a group of rooms and corridors in which challenges, clues and useful items can be found. Thus, location crawls. Anytime your player characters go and explore a place in the world, you're probably using the location crawl, aka dungeon crawl, game structure. How does it work? Well, in short, the GM describes the place the characters are in, briefly, giving them some key information such as the size of the place, what they can sense without any effort with their eyes, ears, nose, general sense of touch, and telling them if there are visible exits is important too, as are the main features of the place with which the player characters might interact. Quote, The Dungeon Master leaves the decisions to the players. The DM presents the setting, describing what the characters see, offering choices of actions and so forth, but the course of the game is determined by the actions of the party, as decided by all the players. The DM can almost relax and enjoy the characters' progress as they explore, make maps, solve puzzles and so forth. Once the players are done with that first place, they will choose an exit and enter the next place. The GM describes the new location and play proceeds. Repeat ad infinitum, or at least until the whole location has been explored. But of course, along the way, the player characters will encounter challenges. Encounters, the term D&D gave us in that basic set of rules, can include fights with other creatures or people, tricks and traps to overcome, or simply clues to find. Often a canny GM will sprinkle a mix of challenges into the same room. Once they deal with the guards, do the PCs also notice the three clues that can be discovered if they take the time to search the guard room? It's a simple structure, and it's easily portable to any genre. Once you realise that dungeon crawls are a game structure, not simply a style of play, but a fundamental procedure for running a role-playing game, you can unleash the whole so-called pillar of role-playing that is labelled exploration. For me, being most engaged by exploration as a key driver for my interest in these games, the location crawl is the go-to game structure when I start almost any campaign. Location crawls, also known as dungeon crawls, have a procedure. This is a core element in the methodology of role-playing games, and it's something that's often overlooked. Most modern game designs assume the GM will know this game structure and therefore, over the years, telling folk how to run a crawl has disappeared from almost all publications. Even modern D&D doesn't really tell you how to run a dungeon. This is why it's valuable to go back and reread the 1983 Redbox D&D basic set. There's a procedure which in D&D is referred to as the events in a game turn. Quote, one 
Wandering Monsters, DM rolls 1d6 normally checked every two turns. 2. Actions, Caller describes all party actions, movement, listening, searching, etc. 3. Results, if A, a new area is mapped, the DM describes it. If B, an encounter occurs, skip to order events in an encounter. C, if something is discovered, secret door, item, etc., the DM announces the results. If no encounter occurs, then D, game turn ends, return to number one. End quote. Underneath this sit two other procedures, the order of events in an encounter, alluded to in the game turn procedure, plus the order of events in combat. For a lot of modern GMs, this idea of procedure can be a little alien and feel restrictive. In my experience, using the basic procedure of a dungeon called game structure is freeing and lessens my anxiety. Quote, During most of a D&D game, the dungeon master leaves the decisions to the players. The DM presents the setting, describing what the characters see, offering choices of actions and so forth, but the course of the game is determined by the actions of the party, as decided by all the players. The DM can almost relax and enjoy the characters' progress as they explore, make maps, solve puzzles and so forth. End quote. For me, the key has been to translate that procedure into something more generic. Each time the PCs move in a new location, I run through the procedure. Does anything unexpected happen? I generally use random event tables to determine this, but those are a subject of a whole different episode, so I'll not delve too deeply into that right now. Does anything unexpected happen? Describe the location to the players, including any unexpected additional details. Ask the magic question, what do you want to do? Listen to the players' action declarations. Adjudicate the actions using the rules when necessary. And then results. If a new area is mapped, then describe it. If an encounter occurs, skip to the order of events for an encounter. If something is discovered, like a secret door or item or whatever, describe it. And if nothing interesting occurs, the game turn ends. And then you return to the beginning. I find this idea of game turns very useful. In D&D, the game turn is defined as being 10 minutes in length. In BRP, incidentally, this is defined as being 5 minutes, and I have come to prefer the shorter interval from basic role-playing, but as long as you are consistent, it doesn't matter too much. Why is the game turn useful? Because it provides a framework for running the game. You set up the situation, the players get to respond and make meaningful decisions, and then you use the rules to adjudicate those choices. Once everyone has taken their turn, then you mark off the passage of time and repeat. As you mark off the time, you can check to see if torches have burned out, lanterns have run out of oil, or some other time-limited resources such as spells have expired. It's a checklist to keep the game flowing, and it reduces stress at the table for the GM. Anything that reduces my load also reduces the anxiety I'll feel at the table. Checklists remove the need to think about what comes next. The same is true for the encounter procedure and, of course, the combat procedure. Taken together, they give you a structure for running your entire game session. And now for the last piece of the puzzle. The way in which the 1983 D&D basic set teaches you to play also shows the dungeon master how to set up and design a dungeon for dungeon crawling. The player's book begins with the classic solo narrative about the initial encounter with Bargle, the beginning of which I quoted at the top of the episode. 
From there, the player is given a classic solo turn-to-entry number type adventure to play through, which extends that narrative. This teaches how one situation leads to another situation, and then how one adventure leads to and can continue a previous adventure. It's quite ingenious and primes everyone at the table on the basics of playing D&D. You then get all the player-facing stuff about making a character, playing in a group, including the basics of adventuring and encounters, including combat. The Dungeon Master's book gives the aspiring Arbiter a three-level dungeon to play through. The first level, starting outside the Castle of Mistermere, takes the DM through a turn-to-entry number style process until the player characters enter the castle, the dungeon proper. From here, you are introduced to the map and key of the dungeon and told to refer to the appropriately numbered entry key as labelled on the map. Quote, the first level of this dungeon may be used for two or three group games. The second level of the dungeon is left for you to fill. A map is given, along with a list of possible monsters. No wandering monsters are encountered on level 1, but they should now start appearing occasionally on levels 2 and 3. Dungeon level 3 is left entirely for you to create, and you may add lower levels if you wish. End quote. As the Alexandrian Justin Alexander has mentioned in the past, he's noticed that many modern gamers who have not been exposed to this progression of learning about dungeons often fail to grasp quite how an adventure can be designed. I've seen DM's guild products that fail to provide a map or a key, and sometimes even just write up all the content as if it were a single linear narrative for you to play through. This is the impact of removing the methodology of dungeon crawls, also known as location crawls, from those gaming products. The process is familiar to older gamers. You draw a map of the location, all of the rooms and passageways individually labelled with a number or letter. You then write a short key for the map which references the map labels and provides details on what is to be found in each location. There's an art to writing an effective key that is another whole topic of discussion, but the short version would be to include first everything the player characters can notice using their basic senses, then lists any details that would be rewarded for further examination of anything initially noticed in the location. And then list anything you need for handling hidden clues or items, such as might be discovered if the deeper examination is fruitful. Thus, it's a three-layered cake of information. It's then useful to reference any rule stuff that you feel you tend to forget or are trying to learn or just would find useful. Things like stat blocks or the difficulty numbers or modifiers, which pretty much all depends on the specific rule system you're using. Notice how the rules sit alongside all of this game structure stuff. You'll need to interface with the rules mechanisms to run the game, but the methodological game structure is doing all the heavy lifting. Procedures make running the game easier and also consistent. Once you've got your map and key, you can insert the player characters and use the game turn procedure to begin game play. As Mensa notes in the 1983 D&D book, Quote, the DM can almost relax and enjoy the character's progress as they explore, make maps, solve puzzles, and so forth. End quote. And that's basically how to run a location crawl, dungeon crawl, starship crawl, mansion crawl, or any other specific type of physical location in which you expect the player characters to go exploring. Now that we've got combat and we've got the location crawl, well we can run some pretty fine games. In D&D terms, that was considered enough for three whole levels of D&D Basics progression systems, some 4,800 to something like 16,000 XP's worth of gaming, depending on your character's class. From there, 
D&D introduced us to the hex crawl through the expert set, the third great game structure in role-playing games. But that's a conversation for another time. Thanks for listening. I hope to see you next time. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question or comment, then please hop over to speakpipe.com slash roleplayrescue, where you can leave a 90-second message. Or if you prefer, just open up a voice memo app on your device, record what you want to say or ask, and email it directly to me via hello at rpgrescue.com. This time, well, just a couple of short messages from Barry, a.k.a. GM Shadow, and Jason, both of which are talking about episode two, Crag's Ruin, the experimental episode wherein I recorded a solo actual play. Hi, Chad, it's Barry here from Shadow the GM. Just to say, finish listening to your Crag's Ruin episode and what to say more, please. Uh, absolutely loved it. Good to hear it. Um, also good to hear something that wasn't BX. Uh, not no offence to the podcast, but obviously it's nice to hear something that isn't the same game system being played um, as an actual play. Um, cool, yeah, keep up the good work. I hope to do some more soon. Hey, Trey, Jason here. Just listened to episode 12. That- Zero two, Craig's Ruin. Yeah, great episode. Really enjoyed it. I thought you did a great job. I'm glad you're able to get that out. It's definitely a lot harder to record something like that than it seems, as opposed to just talking into the microphone for an episode. You are right. Um, great job, though, and I will talk to you soon. Looking forward to your talk with Arlen Walker. So I just wanted to say thank you to both those guys for calling in and giving me some feedback. Uh, they're both patrons and so had a little bit of early access to the episode. And so, yeah, that's kind of like the first I've heard. I had a few nice messages as well from various patrons in the Roleplay Rescue Discord. So thank you to all of those guys too. I think there's a general feeling that mm, you'd like me to do a bit more of that. I think what's probably likely to happen is I'm going to slowly record another piece and probably release that to patrons uh, sort of as a little bit of a test piece i guess if i get to a point where the game has two three four five six episodes and they're sort of coherent i may well then release them into the wild and uh you know i don't know maybe it's time to actually have a sort of separate solo tales podcast stream i don't know uh, anyway if you've got more comments on that or if you hated it or whatever please do let me know and i will see about well you know giving you some more i mean quite pleasantly surprised that people liked it thanks guys i really appreciate you calling in so that's it massive thank you to barry from shadow of the gm podcast and jason from the nerds rpg variety cast for calling in today i deeply appreciate those messages please keep comments and questions coming Thanks also to the Roleplay Rescue patrons who support the show through patreon.com slash rpgrescue and to John from Tale of the Manticore for the show music. Big thanks to you too for listening. I hope you found this useful and, well, at least interesting. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again next time. Game on.